0: See, in a very cool way, he, he's talking about this idea that the law that, they, that we're fulfilling because of these changed hearts shows what love looks like. That in other words, I think we live in a culture and a society right now that kind of defines what love is. You know, it's like, you know, what does love got to do? Got to do with it? <clears throat> just same old, some old-fashioned notion. I don't know, that's the only part of the song I know. But there's just this side of it, though, where we are not the ones who define love God defines love. He's the one that determines what does it mean to love our neighbors ourselves. And the very cool thing about it is is that once we receive those hearts, we're able then to fulfill the law, to love people in the way that God intended them to be loved. So when we talk about this, is that what we're going to be kind of stretching forward in and what I'm trying to kind of maybe expand on this week is that last week we talked about this idea of us being God's people, his plan to impact the world. Well, now we're going to kind of answer how. We're going to talk about this idea, number one, that we're a contrast community, meaning because we have changed hearts, we're going to live differently in the world in which we live in. and we're going to live, again, by the story and the way that it flows itself to in a way that we fulfill the law. We show the heart of God. We show the character of God, what his people are supposed to look like. In a, and I would say this in contrast to the world that we live in. But the second thing that we're going to talk about today is not only that we're a contrast group of people, but I think also in a really powerful way, we are a group of people that Jesus talked about can be salt and light. We're these ones that not only live in contrast, but then we can show people this is how it is that we are called to live by God. This is what, to um, to go back to the words of of Christian, the way that he talked about it out of the, the Beatitudes, this is the good life. And so that's what we're going to do today, but we're going to do it through how Jesus now looks at the law and he says, look, I get it that they said one thing, but I'm now going to give you the heart and the intent of the law so that you can now live rightly in front of the world to be this contrast community, number one, but then to show them how it is that we're to love like God wants us to love. Now again, right in line with the law, with what Jesus taught, we're not exiting that, we're fulfilling that, we're we're, we're building it up we're showing what it's supposed to look like so that's what we're going to do that's what we're going to look at so one of the things that i think is are we going here oops i forgot to do slides (laughs) let's talk about it being a contrast well what jesus is going to do in matthew 5 21 and 27 you can look down there in your bibles if you need a bible i always forget to say this raise your hand if you need a bible anybody all right one over there i see that hand for only 19.99, you also get a prayer cloth from me. <laughs> totally kidding, totally kidding. But what Jesus is going to do is, is he's going to show what he means now in this contrast community by building the difference between him and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Zealots. Now, the way that he's going to do it is he's going to say this statement. You'll see this in verse 21 when he talks about this idea of you've heard that it was said to those of old. Then in verse 27, he says it again in regard to the seventh command or not committing adultery. And he said, you've heard that it was said. Now what's going on in here, again, if you remember right, is that they had relaxed the law. There was a way in which they had made the demands less demanding, the permissions more permissive. And Jesus is like, no, don't, don't, don't lessen what's going on there you can't do that. Don't, don't do that. Instead, allow me to transform you so that you can actually live it in the way that it's intended to be lived. But the question is, is how had they relaxed it? Well, in this particular context, verse 21, look down there, you can see this. He says, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. In verse 27, you shall not commit adultery. Meaning the only thing that they were talking about is just don't commit the act. If you just don't commit to act, you're good. And in an interesting way, they're making the lo- demands of the law less demanding. Now the zealots on the other hand, just so you know this, the zealots are an interesting clue, crew. What they did was, is no, we can kill as long as it's the right people. And in other words, they made the permissions more permissive. And Jesus is like, no. In fact, he says in there, look down there in verse 22, but I say to you, I got a contrast here. Verse 28, he says, I say to you, there's a different way to do this. In fact, what he's gonna do here is, is he's gonna restore the intent of the law of what it means to love God and love others. And even this is the way I would say it. They had imagined what murder and, and, and even adultery were like and what it wasn't supposed to be happening. But he says, I'm going to give you something new to put in your imagination to begin to think through what it is, though, it looks like to love God and to love others. I'm going to give you an example of what I mean so that you can fuel your imagination. Now, the way that he's going to talk about it is, is he's going to talk about it in line of this idea of angry. He says, everyone who is angry with his brother, that's the first thing he talks about. Then he says, whoever insults his brother. Then he says, whoever says you fool, down in verse 28, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, and look at that, what he says there, has already committed adultery with her in, his, in their what? Heart. Now, don't forget from last week, what is God after? Our heart transforming us from the inside out, that the only way that we'll be able to be the contrast people of God is through that transformation. Sometimes people will say to me, like our friends that may be from another faith, like maybe Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or something like that, aren't they such good people? What's the difference between them and us? The difference between them and us, again, doesn't mean that we're better or that we're somehow above them. The difference is what Jesus is talking about. We're not compelled from externals. We're compelled from an internal transformation. In fact, that's what it was when he said, your righteousness will exceed that of the Pharisees. Why? Not because of anything of me, but now what happens inside of me. That's when it's going to allow us to finally be the people that God intends us to be. That's what the Old Testament had been talking about. Now, in this particular case, when he talks about anger, let's just kind of start there. What he's talking about there, first of all, is something that's interesting to kind of wrestle through. See, on one level, we know that God, we see in the Bible, is angry. Even too, like when you look at something like Ephesians 4.26, it says, Be angry, but do not what? Sin. Here's the deal. Within the Bible, there's this thing called righteous anger. Now what I mean by that is that when we look into the world and we see injustice or we see evil that's going on, there's a natural reaction that we have that we know that is wrong and it fills up within us and that is anger. And that is what I would say in many ways is righteous anger. It's even those moments, right, where your kids are are knuckleheads, you know, and you you see them not living as God intended, and it fills you with that sense of, no, that's not the way God intended us to live. But what Jesus is talking about is not just this this idea now of wanting to, to hold, or excuse me, not this idea of righteous anger. He's talking about this idea of unrighteous anger. It's an anger that's nurtured in our imaginations. It's an anger that's, that has absolutely unloving ends. It's an anger that has ugly symptoms towards people. It's an anger that First John talks about. Also, it talks about it in James, in which these ugly symptoms absolutely can destroy people. It's an unrighteous anger that leads to what you're going to see here in just a little bit. It's going to lead to even this idea of us insulting people. See, what starts to happen to us that's so important is, is that we were not designed by God to hold on to anger like that. All throughout the Old Testament, we'll see this, that God is storing up wrath. Why? Because he can handle that anger. You and I, we can't handle that anger, which is why in Ephesians 4, 26, it says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger lest you give the devil a foothold. Why? Because that anger you hold on to, understand this, is an anger that will eventually get the best of you. Now let me use a silly kind of simple example from me being a kid to kind of explain what I'm talking about. When I was in fourth grade, we went to this big giant pool that had these water slides in it and we all went with these different friends and there was a young man named Brett who was like my arch nemesis. And I mean nemesis. So I go up on the top of this really cool slide and nobody else was wanting to go down and it's one you could jump off of and you could, you know, fly through the air and you hit the slide and you come down to the bottom of it. And I was just wanting to impress all the girls that were there. And so I stood up there and I go, woo! Now this was also at a time where people wore, I don't know if you guys remember dolphin shorts. (laughs) Brett proceeded to de-pants me in front of everybody. Yeah, nasty, awful thought, I know. And I was trying to roll up those shorts, if you remember dolphin shorts, to try to get him up. And all I could think of, I got to dive off this slide, and I just went. Now, the problem is, Brett was much bigger than me. And Brett being much bigger than me meant, normally dudes, they just go up and poof. But if I would have gone poof, he would have gone back to me poof, and I would have gone poof. And so what happened is, is throughout that time, it just stewed and stewed and stewed and stewed. And, stewed. and we know what this is whenever you take anger and you keep it inside long enough it moves from something that is injustice and we personalize it and we think of vin, vin, excuse me we think of vilifying the person now that was a silly example but you know this whether you're talking a spouse whether you're talking a kid or a parent whether you're talking a friend We see injustice on a regular basis, but God's point in this particular context, Jesus is talking about you can't handle anger. Get rid of it. If you let it sit inside of you, his point is and that word that he moves on to, that word that he uses for insult is this Greek word, which literally means you will eventually begin to look at people and treat them almost subhuman. In fact, it was used as a way of insulting somebody like they're an animal. He then uses this word mora that we translate fool, but it's even something worse than that. You begin to then even use words of their nothingness, wishing they were dead, wishing they never even existed. He says, you leave that thing in there, and I promise you his point is, is eventually it will work its way out, and what he's going to actually do is show us that the way it's going to work its way out is going to result, he says, first of all, in standing before a council, second, or judgment, then he's going to talk about standing before a council, third, he's going to talk about that it's going to actually consume you from this idea of the very fire of hell, meaning the same place that murderers are destined to go, those that are in this way are also destined to go. In other words, it is abhorrible to God. And we're going to talk a little further about it, but just understand this. That anger undealt with will find its way out. That's what I mean. You'll be liable to judgment. You'll be liable to the council. You'll be liable to the hell of fire. Even when we talk about it from this idea of adultery, he's even making sure that we understand you will be liable, look at that, to go into hell. Well, what about adultery? And when we talk about adultery, oftentimes, what he's gonna be referencing now is a little bit different. Oops, let me go backwards. I didn't mean to hit that. When we talk about adultery, there's a way in which there's the committed act, and that's what he's talking about. That was what they were saying. As long as you don't commit the act, you're good. But he's now going to get into this idea of lustful intent. In other words, if you've ever been to the gym any time lately, you walk into that place, and it is a cesspool of potential lustful intent. I go in there, man, and it's just like battlefield time. Here we go. Now, what I mean by that, if you haven't been to the gym, is it's a very scantily clothed group of people. And when you come in, Jesus says, there's a temptation now to move something past what is a normal sexual desire, which is supposed to go towards a spouse. And he says, if you hold on to that thing in the same way that you hold on to hatred, eventually it will mull over inside of you to the point where you begin to have an intent for another person that was never your person to have an intent for. Jesus is looking at them saying, as a contrast community, you have to understand this. It's not just what's on the outside. It's what goes on inside of the heart. Now, let me show you this in regard to anger so I can kind of help you see this. When we talk about anger, again, there's this idea of righteous anger. It should absolutely be there. That's what we talked about in Ephesians 4:26 through 27. There is an anger, but we need to make sure that we don't sin. Well, Why? Because if we hold on to that anger in a way that only God can handle it, and we don't deal with it and deal with it quickly, his point off that is eventually it's going to lead to unrighteous anger. Now here's the thing about unrighteous anger, or even when we talk about unrighteous kind of sexual desire, it will work its way out. And the way that he says it's going to work it out is either, number one, it's going to work out in murder. Now, some of you might go, well, at least I've never murdered anybody. But the same place that murder comes from, the very same root of unrighteous anger is the very same thing that develops insult. Meaning the same plant that they go from, one of those particular leaves might be murder. But on the same plant on the other side of it is insult. Now, let me be careful here in just a second. Do not think in the back of your head, well, it's like, well, if I've already insulted somebody, I might as well kill him. That is illogical. (laughs) What Jesus is talking about in this particular context is that in this life, if you murder someone, you will face the consequences of the sword of the government and you will be tried in front of people. You will not escape what you might, but you don't plan on it. But his bigger point is in the long term, both of them that practice such things, are facing the same reality. He's wanting people to know that, man, if you use your imagination in that hatred towards other people, if you mull it over, if you let it sit inside of you long enough, eventually it will work its way out. And his point is, that's not my kingdom. My kingdom doesn't do that. My kingdom is different my kingdom is a, a one in which not only do we deal with what's going on the outside, but we deal with what's going on in the inside, because the inside," Jesus said, is where things now begin to come out. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, what speaks. So let me just say this: When we talk about this particular reality, it is reprehensible to God, but I would even ask this question: Is this your bent? Are you someone that loves to kind of insult the people that you have learned to hate? Are you a talker? Because this quote is a great one from John MacArthur that I want to read to you just so you can kind of hear it. Here's what it says. It's possible for a person who has never been involved in so much as a fist fight to have more of a murderous spirit than a multiple killer. Many people in the deepest feelings of their hearts have anger and hatred to such a degree that their true desire is for the, hatred or the hated person to be dead. That's what he was talking about with that idea of mora. The fact that fear, cowardice, or lack of opportunity does not permit them to take that person's life does not diminish their guilt before God. Whoo, that was good. Now again, listen to me. Just because you insult people does not mean you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. But what he's trying to show is is that the same place in which murder is, is the idea of hell being that right place for it. He's saying, look, the same outcome is this idea of the insult. My people, his point is, we are not to be like that. Our mouths, he says, are different. So what about sexual desire? Well, there's a way in which sexual desire, I'm thankful for it, man. I'm thankful for books like Song of Solomon. If you haven't read Song of Solomon in a long time, highly encourage it. Song of Solomon speaks to this wonderful reality in which two people that are married are supposed to enjoy this reality of sex between one another. The problem, though, comes in is when it moves from what is to be a good thing, the way God has designed us to be able to enjoy it, and we begin to take thoughts into our mind and use our imagination over and over and over, mulling over doing acts that are not in line with bearing God's image. Now, this one, I think, is extremely serious in the society in which we live in, so please listen to me on this one as well. I think right now we live in an oversexed culture that is doing everything within it to promote this idea that you have the right to bring images and thoughts into your head and work them over. And at the end of the day, there will be no consequences. That is a lie. When we imagine doing things that God never created us to do, here's the point, eventually it will come out. Another thought in there, just to kind of help us as we wrestle through this, I used to always say it's every man's battle. It's a guy thing. But did you know that the fastest growing group of people that use porn are women over 50? So those of you that are women over 50, don't think you're getting out of this one. It is the idea, everyone. Now, what is so interesting about lustful intent that moves to either heart adultery or it moves to adultery is that adultery, at least within adultery, you have a willing party. The grotesqueness of heart adultery is that I or you have the audacity to take another person created in the image of God, put them into my mind, and mull over them doing things that God never created them to do with me, and then at the end of it, somehow thinking that I deserved to be able to do that. That, my friends, is a form of mental rape. They went into your head and it went over and over and over, but they, didn't even, they weren't even willingly seeking to do it. Now, Jesus does want us to understand if you're somebody that says, well, you know, I've already thought it through. I might as well go all the way. That's ridiculous. His point is to show that on this playing field that we call life, he was wanting them to, to, to see and to understand that what happens inside of here to God's contrast community, it matters. Our hearts are what God is after. He wants us to be this people, but not just on the outside looking good. He wants us to be that from the inside is what he's talking about. And that's where he takes it even a step, I want to take it even a step further to this point. I would say this in Romans one thirty two. oops, let me go back there oh is not romans 132 not there no it's right there there we go romans 132 he just says this though they know god's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die that's the idea of jesus he's laying out there they deserve hell they deserve judgment punishment look at this one though they not only practice them but give approval to those who practice them oh that's taking a whole step further See, in this particular context, what he's saying is, is that we derive a pleasure from hearing or watching others do evil. Now, I say that from the standpoint, I don't know how many of you are kind of news junkies and you watch your particular news show. The way that I've started to reference those things is news shows are just hate porn. They allow us to sit there while people on a screen mock and diminish those that we want them to vilify and we find this absolute pleasure within it. And Paul's whole point is, and I would say even Jesus would stretch it out to that, is that you choose to participate that, you're the exact same thing as the world. You're no longer the contrast community. We don't hate people. We have to deal with things inside of us. But he wants us to know it comes from that same reprehensible plant. It's equally deplorable to God. That's not my contrast community. So here's what I want to throw out to you. This is kind of the, the bad news and then we're going to move to the good news. To be the contrast community family that God intends us to be, we must first be concerned with inner transformation to the heart by the Holy Spirit that one, uproots sin in our lives and two, leads to biblical love for God and others. We need to be that. We need to practice it. I don't know how many of you have kids on a regular basis, man. As I parent my children, most days, I'm just wanting to modify their behavior. Just be good. Just do what I say. Just be home when I tell you to. Just tell your mom that I'm the better parent. (laughs) I'm not. But listen to me. We can get our kids to do what we say maybe. But the thing that Jesus is after is not just doing what we say. He's after their heart. We want to raise kids that have the inner transformation of Jesus so that when they exit our home, they are transformed from the inside so that they love and obey God above all things. And then they love others as themselves. We want to see transformation See that's why I say a lot every time we talk about the political season is we could we could set up the 10 commandments and we could all try to live by the 10 commandments in the United States. But just like that video showed, do you understand that even living by the 10 commandments, all people would do is realize they can't keep them. Why? because they have to be transformed in the heart. Government will not save us. News stations will not save us. None of these things will save us. The only thing that will save us is the good news of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit. That is the only way society, culture, me, you, our kids, our friends can ever change. And Jesus wants us to know that's what my contrast community looks like. It looks like a group of people that fight for the heart. So that's his first thing. So how then do we slow decay? Well, one of the ways he's going to talk about it in verse 23 is he's going to now cause us again I'm going to come back to this idea of an imagination. He's going to give us a different story. And in this story, he's going to say in verse 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you. In other words, there's a dude sitting there and he's come to offer his sacrifices or there you are sitting there out inside of a group of people and we're getting ready to worship Jesus. And then something happens, and we'll talk about what that is in just a little bit. Or, verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, or if your right hand causes you to sin. In other words, there's this ultimate conviction of the Holy Spirit that we have if we're followers of Jesus. He says, listen to it. Listen. Listen to the Holy Spirit prompting you. Listen to the Holy Spirit convicting you. Listen to the Holy Spirit doing a work within you. If you're in that moment, use your imagination. Now his point is, what will you do? Well, look at verse 24. In the context of anger, he says, leave your gift before the altar. Go, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now here's the first one. There's this immediate conviction and at conviction, the person says, I gotta make things right with my brother. In fact, this is the way I'd put it. Not only do we have to heed the voice of the Holy Spirit from a conviction standpoint, but we're to do it immediately. Why does he say immediately? Because if you leave that thing in there, if you hide it and say, well, you know, I did go to church today. I'm a pretty good person. Or you begin to just cover it up and pretend like it's not there. it will eat you away, and eventually it's going to come out. He says, "Deal with it immediately. And what does he mean by "deal with it? The idea is, you can't handle it. You can't handle holding on to it, but God says, "You don't have to. I am the one. Vengeance is mine," says the Lord. You don't have to hold on to it. Give it to me. Give it to me." But Todd, you don't understand what was done to me. You don't get what they did. They deserve my wrath. And I would say to you if you're talking about another brother and sister in Christ who have been freed from the wrath of Jesus, what gives you any right to put that wrath back on them? He's saying to him deal with it immediately. Don't buy into the lies, that devil's foothold that tells us that, well, you went to worship, so therefore it's good. The way we justify, well, it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with it, fine. But then there's another side of it in verse 29 when he's talking about adultery, where he then says, well, how do we now deal with it as a group of people? He says, tear it out and throw it away when he's talking about your eye. Cut it off and throw it away talking about your hand. And so therefore today what we're gonna do is eye plucking out and hand cutting off. Okay, maybe not today. There was a guy named Origen who was an early church father that thought that the way he would deal with his sexual drive was to castrate himself. But the problem was he changed the external, but he didn't change what? The heart. Now, Jesus would oftentimes preach in hyperbole. He would say these big, giant statements. Paul did it too. Kind of people at that time would use hyperbole to get you to understand the importance of doing something. The idea behind this has way more to do with like a Matthew 6.22 that this eye that you've been given is the lamp of the body. If, if your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. In other words, change what your eyes look at was his point. Don't let your eyes control you. You control your eyes because what goes into the eye will either bring light or it will bring, he says also in Matthew 6, darkness. Be careful, and this is the way I would say it, how you fuel your imagination. Now, what do I mean by that? I think at a time in which we absorb media at a rate that that has never been happening ever in the time of our culture, we absorb words of hate and wrath at a record pace that probably has never been seen before. He's saying to them, "Don't let that come into you. Don't let that fuel your imagination." But it's not just hate. We're in a highly sexualized culture. And some of you be like, "Oh no! Now he's going to tell us, you know, to throw away our songs and throw away our TVs." I'm not saying that. What I am saying to you, though, is be careful what you see. Be careful what you allow to get into your imagination whether it's me or many people that I've worked through on issues of hatred or worked through on issues of uh, of sexual sin, it always starts by just allowing it into the head for a little while and it grows and we feed it and it grows and we feed it and it grows and we feed it. And then all of a sudden we look at ourselves and realize we are trapped. Jesus' point is not only to deal with it immediately, but his other point is, is to deal with it viciously. We're not supposed to maim ourselves, but we are to hate our sin. We're to use the Bible to fuel our hatred, again, not for people, but for our sin. But not only to fuel it, but I would say in another way, we're to fuel now a, a desire to do the right thing. Like that's what he's going to talk about in 121 through 22 when he talks about that idea of reconciliation. In verse twenty, says 21, Colossians 121, it talks about this idea that you used to be God's enemies. You used to be separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions, yet now he's Reconciled you to Himself through the death of the Christ in the physical body. As a result, He has brought you into His own presence. You are holy and blameless as you stand before Him without a single fault. So, in other words, when we understand this idea back here about reconciliation, He expl- Paul explains it. One twenty one is God doing an incredible work within you. But there's more. In 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19, Christ, it says, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We're to so, work it out amongst ourselves. So much so that now in Colossians 1, 19 through 20, that we are now seeking to reconcile all things, to join God in what he's doing. And that's why he talks about in Ephesians two sixteen this idea that this is what ends the hostility between people that have had enmity between one another. It's not just that we're to do away with something. We're to do the exact opposite. We're to be reconcilers. Now, one of the things that I think that was huge within my life, and now I can kind of talk about it, that my dad has passed away. My dad and I had a terrible relationship for about 20 years. It was one of those things, I don't know if you've ever had it, but you just long for it to be restored. And he and I did some not wise things that just caused more friction and more brokenness. Now, in the back of my head, I always thought, man, I want to reconcile with that man who's my father. And I remember finally him looking at me and saying, you know, we need to deal with this. And and I told him, man, I've been praying about this forever. There's just hostility between us. And all of a sudden, he said these amazing words. Please forgive me. And I said, tell me the 10 things you want to ask for forgiveness for. Right? <laughs> and he just began to rattle off all of these different things. Next thing I know, I'm asking for forgiveness. Jesus' point is we reconcile because we're a contrast community that's intended to bring salt and light to the world. And even Christian's going to talking about it in a couple weeks, even reconciling with our enemies. She says, that's how far I want this contrast community to go. I want you to rub that salt out into the world. I want that light to come out where now truth and love is brought to bear and hope in such a way that they realize that they live inside of a world that is lost and dying and falling apart. And while the church and God's people are not perfect, we're at least seeking to bring to bear this salt and light in a world that I would say is desperate for it. Jesus is saying, be that. So let me let me just give you a few things to kind of think through. At the very end you can snap your picture if you want to, but when I walk with people through reconciliation, these are kind of the steps that I use with them. One. I always look at them and I say, "Hey, before you go immediately, pray." Pray because it's not just that you've sinned against your brother, you have sinned against God. I say, ask the Holy Spirit for insight because whatever you think you did wrong, you probably did more. Ask the Spirit to convict you. You know this, God loves to bring truth to the surface so that we can be reconciled. Confess, I always say. Tell God, I was wrong. And then repent. But let me say this. It is not repentance until you practice immediacy. Repentance acts quickly. As soon as you've dealt with it, you go and you confess or you confront to your brother or sister in Christ. You listen for unknown sin. Here's one of the things you might also look at them and say, is there anything else? And God just might use that person to go, yep, there's more. But let me say this, be careful. Because as you do this, you need to take responsibility for actual sin. Now, what do I mean by that? Just because somebody says you did something, make sure before you say, oh, yeah, yeah, I was wrong, just to try to be expedient to try to pull things together. If you don't mean what you're saying or if it's not really some way in which you've sinned against them, you will keep that thing inside of you and you will mull it over in a very nasty way. Make sure you confess actual sin and then give and receive forgiveness. Take that forgiveness But take it in such a way that you understand what you're doing. I always tell people when we're dealing through these things, I I say, I want you to write down everything that's with this person has done wrongly to you, and they write it down. And then I look at them and I say, okay... Now, when you ask them for forgiveness, you're going to take this and you're going to hand this to them and say, I need you now to take this from me as an act of forgiveness and to not ever bring it up again. But you're the one that has to live with it. This idea of of forgive and forget is not true. Actually, it's forgive and still look down at those things and choose to still forgive. And one time, I'll never forget this, the wife grabbed the piece of paper and she just stood up. And she started walking out of my office and she's tearing the paper. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? And so like, husband and I are following and she walks to the ladies' restroom and I'm like, okay, I probably shouldn't go in there. What are you doing? This is a strange time to take a bathroom break. And she held those pieces of paper like this and she just then put them in the toilet and hit flush. And she says, I forgive you. It was beautiful. But it's not only that, it's this, we need to love through restoration. Involve others if necessary. But one of the things that I think is so important is to reimagine the person biblically. When you've hated them for a while, it's always good to start to remember, oh well, yeah, who are they? They're a son or a daughter of the king. They're, they're someone who's chosen. They've been made right. They are no longer a wrath bearer. But there are times, as far as it's possible amongst you, you can live with peace with all men, but sometimes people don't want to go there. But even in that time when people don't want to go there, men. You still love through patience. You involve others and trust the process. We're gonna talk about Matthew 18 when we get to that point, but that's a process that we walk through to build restoration when the other person doesn't wanna do it. But here's the thing. The reason Jesus is bringing this up is because his community is supposed to look different. Now let me just finish with this one. He talks about this idea of coming to terms quickly with your accuser. Now in some ways I'm gonna let Christian answer this idea of love your enemies later on in Matthew 5. But I want you to notice that word. Come to terms what? Quickly. Now there's a huge kind of thing here in which there's a debtor's court and that's kind of what was being talked about there. But the main issue that he's trying to get at here is do it quickly. Because if you get thrown in jail, it's gonna mull over in your heart. Don't let it get there. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, even 21. Do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's kind of what I think he's talking about. That's what i let Christian engage with. Oops. Now, sexual immorality. Let me do this and then we'll call it a, a morning. When it comes to sexual immorality, one of the ways in which I think it's important to understand about lustful intent is that we are designed not to engage in it, but to flee it. Let me just say this. I think Christians should be great runners. Not physically, but from immorality. In this particular case in First Corinthians, he says, every sin that a person commits is outside the body, but sexually immoral person sins against his own body. You are one that is now a container of the Holy Spirit. You've been brought with a price. So no longer, now you need to glorify God in your body. In other words, here's the first kind of principle of it, is that flee sexual immorality when we talk about this idea of adultery. The other thing is we have to put to death what is earthly in, our, in, in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetous idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. We need to put them to death. In other words, we need to be vicious with them. And even Job, I love this one. I made a covenant with my eyes. If my step is turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot is stuck to my hands, and he even talks about this, uproot it. Get rid of it. In other words, he's saying, God, I want these eyes and these hands to be rightly. So here's how we fight sexual impurity when I walk with people through this. One, learn to flee immediately. The moment that you see yourself being tempted, learn to run. It's what I call with guys I'm working with, the Joseph principle. When he started to kind of be allured in, we run. The other one is in that moment, man, we pray and we confess We repent for those things that have happened to us. But look at this one. It is not repentance, I've always told guys, until you walk openly with others. Not only confess your sins to God, but I have found the greatest disinfective against sexual sin is when I'm honest with others about it. If you're someone in here, man or woman, that's dealt that had a hard time dealing with sexual sin, the greatest thing you can do is first of all, come before God. But the second greatest thing you can do is be honest about it with people. Don't let it sit and stew because it will get you. The other one is wield the ax wisely. Now what I mean by that is some things need to be cut out. If you're someone that struggles with sin, can I just say this? Don't watch certain things. It's not that hard. Well, it's hard. But it's not that much of a difficult thing to be able to understand what needs to happen. But be careful. Turning off bad things does not cure the what? The heart. I had a guy one time come in. He's no longer here, so I don't mind telling the story. Um, But he came in and he goes, man, I'm about $5,000 down. I go, $5,000 down. What happened? He goes, well, I've thrown my computer into the tub. I've thrown my phone into the tub. He goes, if I could, I would throw myself into the tub, but I can't. You know, so he's just kind of talking it through. And I said, well, how's it going? He says, I still have the same problem. I go, because you must change the heart. Keep in step with the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. If you're walking with somebody through sexual sin, help them to understand what it means to keep in step with the Spirit. And then teach them also. Sometimes we tell them, don't do this, don't do this, don't this. We forget to tell people what to do. Well, what do we do? Oh, man, I dive into the Word of God. I dive into prayer. I dive into fellowship with other people. I reinvigorate my imagination about the right things, about the right pleasures. I allow the word of God to get into my mind so that I might think the thoughts of Jesus so that I might rightly now carry out things that he wants me to. But not only that, I need to reimagine people biblically. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, inside of the body, one of the ways we understand this is Paul said this in 2 Timothy 5, treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters. Look at that, in all what? Purity. Purity. One of the greatest ways to combat sin when you look at someone, again, man or woman, whatever it is, is to treat them like family. Family doesn't do that unless you're from Arkansas. If you're from Arkansas, I'm just kidding. But it's this side of it. No, reframe that. And let me just say this one. When you fail, and it's not if you fail in regards to just sexual sin in the mind, it's when you fail Fail into maturity, not mediocrity. Oftentimes we fail in quiet. We fail on our own away from people. We fail in such a way that we don't ever deal with it. And the guys always look at me and they say, well, what does it mean to fail into maturity? I go, go back to step one. He goes, but when I get back to down to seven, if I fail again, I go, well, then go back to step one. And you keep going back to step one over and over and over and over. And I think you get my point don't give up, fight. But then this one, can I just say this? Practice thankfulness and celebration. (laughs) One time a dude came into my office and he's like, oh, I go, man, how you doing? He goes, oh, it's awful. He goes, it's only been a month. And without him knowing, I go, whoa. And he looks back at me, he goes, dude, scared. What are you doing? I go, dude, it's been a month. He goes, what do you mean? I go, a month. I go, you went for 15, 20 years doing the opposite. You've already gone a month, dude. And I got up out of my chair and I gave him a high five. I go, dude, do you realize what God has done in you? The spirit of God has controlled your libido in the way that you're supposed to control it for a whole month. He goes, but it's been a month. I go, but dang it, it's been a month. We celebrate. We celebrate. I would even say this in regards to anger. I think one of the main reasons that we go back to sin is because we aren't thankful and we don't have this sense of celebration. I think that's one of the greatest ways to put barriers to me going back into the way that I used to be. Why? Because we now bring it to its full completion where now we give praise where praise is due. And everything is supposed to go that direction. When it goes that direction, it brings it full circle. So here's what it is. Here's our first one. Big idea. To be the contrast community family that God intends us to be, we must first be concerned with inner transformation of the heart by the Holy Spirit that uproots sin in our lives and leads to biblical love for God and others. And here's the last one. To be salt and like community family, we must deal immediately and harshly with sin so that we use our imaginations to fuel biblical love instead of hate and lustful intent for our brothers, sisters, neighbors, enemies, image bearers, and then love in action, fulfilling the law and responding like Jesus did or would to them. If you're an English teacher, I know that's a run-on sentence. But that's it. Now Let me just look at all of you and say this we're called to be a contrast community you are part of his plan his statement in verse 17 you y'all and only y'all are the plan and he's calling us now as God's people to be that contrast community be different not perfect different and then be that salt and light in the world and show people what does it look like now for God's kingdom people to live in the way that they're supposed to. And I promise you either, number one, they will revile you. He talks about that in verse 11. Sometimes people will knock you down. But the other one is they actually might give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We might actually take a cynical world that's out there that looks at us as Christians and thinks we're a bunch of know-it-alls that hate particular groups of people and then people to go, there it is. That's the contrast I'm looking for. That is the good life that christian talked about they have a message of hope to the world they have given me an answer for the hope that's within them that's what we're called to be and to do we are called to bring it to life so here's the way we're going to practice it as we leave and i'm going to bring the band up we're going to take the lord's supper together now if you got your bible and you want to go to 1 corinthians 11 you're going to see what i mean about what we're about ready to practice Now, one of the things that happens in 1 Corinthians 11 was is that there was a group of people who basically thought they were better than another group of people. And it was causing division and strife. And this is the way I would put it. It was causing anger within their particular church. So what Paul does with them is he now calls them, look at verse 27. If you eat this bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, you will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Examine your heart. So let me just say this. We're gonna take just a second and we're gonna examine our heart. Now, I've always told my children that the devil dwells on Sunday morning. What I mean by that is I don't know how many of you have fights and chaos trying to get to Cornerstone. My family does. And there are many mornings I have to look over at my wife and say, you need to confess your sin. (laughs) No, I I look at her and I just go, please forgive me. Now the seriousness of this is, is taking this time to just go, Father, is there anyone, even in this room right now, that I have either, number one, hated within my heart, number two, I've begun to degrade them through insult and speaking ill of them in front of other people, Or even, don't do this though, but maybe just in your own mind, is there someone even that, man, I need to not look wrongly on them.